I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Laura Welcher. I'm the director of the Rosetta Project at the Long Now Foundation. And uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, oh, thank you. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Rosetta Project, uh, the project is the Long Now Foundation's first exploration into very long-term information archiving. And the work we're doing is to build a collection of the world's nearly 7,000 languages, uh, many of which are rapidly going extinct. So we're trying to document them and archive information about them as quickly as we can. And there's a digital side to the Rosetta Project, and we have uh, lots of text documents and audio recordings and video recordings, and we make those all publicly available uh, through the, the generosity of Brewster Kale at the Internet Archive, where we have uh, special collections there. And uh, we also have, um, there's another side to the Rosetta Project, which is a, a very long-term analog backup of the collection. And that is the Rosetta Disk. And you can see uh, a little bit of the Rosetta Disk on this slide here. And the Rosetta Disk uh, is actually a physical object. Um, and it has between 13,000 and 14,000 pages on it uh, that are pages of documentation on human language, on over 1,500 human languages, actually. And they're microscopically formed into the, nickel, the solid nickel itself. And you read it, it's not a ones and zeros, so it's not digital. You read it like you would read a book, and all you need to do it is a microscope that can do optical magnification of about 500 power. And when you look at it through a microscope, you can read it just like you could read the pages of a book. And the idea is that this is a physical version of the archive that could last and be still readable and legible for thousands of years. And we've made just a very few prototypes of this disk that we've made available. Um, and just very recently, we have engineered a special edition, a special version of this disk that we're now making available as a special numbered edition. And uh, we're making it available um, to people who sign up as 10,000-year members of the Long Now Foundation. So these are the disks that are out there in the world today. Like I said, there's just a very few of them. Uh, one is with uh, William Lidwell, who, is, um, who has written a book, The Principles, uh, Universal Principles of Design. Um, there's another that is on public display at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Special Collections Library, and that was through a gift of the Lazy Eight Foundation, one of the first foundations that supported our work. One is in Germany with the Oliver Wilke Stiftung for Sprachen. Uh, one we presented to Dr. Wayne Clough when he gave his talk, Smithsonian Forever, as part of the series in 2009. 
and that is destined for the National Anthropological Archives. Um, it is currently on display uh, at the, uh, the museum castle, so if you go to the, visit the castle, you could ask to see the Rosetta disk there. And uh, one is with Brewster Kale of the Internet Archive, and he was the, the person who first suggested this technology to us, and one of our earliest supporters. And there's also um, some disk material and, and uh, one copy of the Rosetta disk that's out there in space. Uh, and uh, so very, very recently we had the opportunity to test some of the materials of the disk to see how they would last. We've learned that if uh, there's ever an opportunity to send a, anything into space, say yes. <laughs> so... We've, we've tested some of the materials, and they've come back, and you can read about that on our blog. Um, there, but the, the disk that's out there in space is um, uh, on a European Space Agency mission. Uh, it was launched um, around 2004, and the disk is um, on the craft itself. And the, the, the mission is to send a craft in orbit with a comet. And there's going to be a part of the craft that's actually going to land on the comet and relay information back to the Earth. It's the first time we've, we've ever attempted to do this. And there's a Rosetta disk on board that orbiter, so it's going to be out there and orbiting with that comet for we don't know how long. But it's out there, and if you want to read up on it, you can go to the European Space Agency website and track it, and then you can think, there's a Rosetta disk out there. So, um, so once again, this is um, this new uh, specially engineered version of the disk is available for a 10,000 year membership in the Long Now Foundation. And that's really a lifetime membership. And that's for... <laughs> so we, we, we wish our members a very, very happy, healthy, long life. Uh, and uh, that membership is for a one-time donation of $10,000 to support the organization. And, uh, and to honor your commitment to our organization. We're going to use that to um, build long-term financial su uh, support and sustainability for the foundation, for our outreach and our programs like this one tonight, and also for the Rosetta Project. So thank you. Thanks, Laura. As you can tell, Laura is not only in charge of the Rosetta Project and the languages and so on. She's a professional linguist. She's also in charge of program development and uh, fundraising. By the way, if you live to be 11,000 years, you've got to re-up. <laughs> but we assume you'll have been doing good investments over that time and it won't cost you that much. We're coming up on uh, the, the 100th one of these seminars about long-term thinking. And uh, so it's appropriate to have somebody who's been with us from the start. Uh, formerly, the Long Now Foundation started in 1996 in the Presidio. The Internet Archive formally started in 1996 in the Presidio. Um, by the time we got to the year 2000 and our first prototype of the clock was finished just in time to bong twice for the 2000 years on uh, the night of uh, 2000 AD, we were in Brewster Kale's. Uh, Internet Archive building uh, in the Presidio. And so we've been pretty much marching in step ever since. Um, it's no accident that the, the way you access the Rosetta disk to connect with languages. Um, we thought this language thing, this Rosetta disk thing, was going to be kind of a short-term project that you know, we would spin off like we've spun off other things. 
But language is, in fact, long-term thinking. It's how humans basically manage cognitive stuff over centuries and millennia. The languages express that. And losing a language is losing that kind of duration, that kind of world. And we are losing the languages. So recording them all now is an important long-term project, both reaching all the way back into the origins and the history of language and reaching all the way forward to curiosity that people are going to have about these languages, presumably indefinitely. So if you want to see the Rosetta Archive uh, real online in real time, you go to the Internet Archive where it is. And then there's a, uh, a backup down at Stanford. Brewster Cable is also part of one of our first conferences called Time and Bits. Uh, the problem is that time and bits don't like each other. Uh, digital stuff tends to be inaccessible after just a couple of years. And one of the things that everybody said back then is, well, for sure, everything that's on the internet is going to go away. And dead links and, you know, just it's gone. Uh, Brewster pointed out at that time that the life of something on the internet is just a few months, typically. And um, that was understood to be an insolvable problem. We were wrong about that. And Brewster Cale will say not only why that's the case, but why lots of other things are the case. Brewster. Thank you. It's fabulous to be here. I do think the Internet Archive and the Long Now Project are partners. Uh, we have um, in parallel missions and sort of grand pieces uh, of, of sort of aspirations towards doing things or being a part of things that can see the whole, whether it's all time, all distance, all knowledge. Um, the Internet Archive um, that I'm going to describe some of the projects there, but more generally, what's going on in libraries and knowledge and information. We're really striving to build the Library of Alexandria version 2. The Library of Alexandria version 1, uh, 300 BC, strove to have all the books of all the peoples of the world. But you had to go to Alexandria to be able to, uh, to read them. We have an opportunity that doesn't come up very often to try to one-up the Greeks. Can we make it so that everyone, anywhere, that's curious enough to want to have access can have access to the world's knowledge. And that's what uh, I'm going to try to describe, that the idea of universal access to all knowledge is within our grasp. That not only is this doable, but um, as a whole, we're, we're starting to get there, and it's a, a worthwhile project. And technologically, financially, and probably most importantly legally, um, we can get there. The idea of all the books, music, video, web pages, whatever, everything made by people um, is possible to go and make available to anybody, um, anywhere, at any time. So that's, the, that's my goal out of tonight, is to argue that not only is this possible, it's a good project to be involved in, and frankly, try to recruit some of you to help. So... Internet Archive. We're a nonprofit library. We're independent of the government or um, of governments or universities, um, but we're sort of within the uh, the culture of the museums or or university structures in, uh, within the United States. Uh, this is our headquarter building over in in San Francisco, um, and we have 
satellites in lots of other places. We see ourselves in, uh, embedded in the library world. And I like looking at things that people have carved in stone. Things that people have carved in stone, they want you to know, last a long time. It's sort of important to them. So over the Boston Public Library, this is an uh, institution that was built at the height of the robber baron era uh, in the United States and actually funded by those uh, guys, uh, and they carved free to all. So even in probably the most capitalist, property-oriented uh, country, um, society ever built, um, there's something special about libraries. They're a bit about how we work um, as a people. And so we see ourselves uh, within that tradition. But if we're going to try to go and do the whole damn thing, let's try to break it down into pieces and sort of say, how big is it? How hard is it? Um, what, what can we do to try to get there? So I'm going to do sort of like in the Amazon.com website, books, music, video, and go over each of these to sort of get an idea of, of so where are we at this point. So texts. If you wanted to put all the texts online, well, you have to ask sort of, well, how much is there? Um, and how hard would it um, be? The largest library in the world is the Library of Congress. Library of Congress, between 26 and 28 million volumes. Uh, and it's an unbelievable collection. But it's larger than, by far than the next uh, uh, libraries down. And a book is about a megabyte. If you had a book in Microsoft Word... Um, it's about a megabyte. So 26 million megabytes, it goes million megabytes, gigabytes, terabytes. So it's about 26, 28 terabytes. That's about this big. You could put it in a single shopping cart in Best Buy uh, and not go completely broke. You could have all of the words in the Library of Congress. And it, you know, would be kind of this big. All right, it would spin for a while, but it would all be accessible. And uh, if you had a powerful enough machine, searchable. Uh, that's pretty cool. So the idea of having it all there uh, is, is, is doable. Then the question is, what do you get? I mean, is it worth doing? And I think over the last bunch of years, we've started getting the idea that, yeah, we want to have books online, and we want even old books online. We want all books online. And there's starting to be different interfaces to them. Some of the first were these very book-looking interfaces um, that you know, had this sort of page-turning uh, 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 point of view, and, you, and you'll see uh, a lot more of, uh, of that. Um, but on the other hand, books are sometimes the right codexes, printed materials, are sometimes the right way to carry things around. Uh, and as in uh, Alexandria Egypt, helping rebuild the new library of Alexandria, which was a great honor. I got to uh, meet with one of the benefactors, Mrs. Mubarak, uh, and she said, but I love my books. And I, I understood that, yeah, okay, we're going to have to go and print the books back out again. So I said, okay, give us a few years, a uh, few months, and we'll come back and make a bookmobile work. So this is a print-on-demand bookmobile. So you can download, print, and bind a book. And a, and a book, uh, a short book, um, costs about a buck a book. At a buck a book, to download, print, and bind means that you can give books away. That they don't become rare resources anymore in some fundamental sense. And they start looking pretty good. And actually, I brought a bunch. So, um, if you pass them around, and if you really like them, just put one in your pocket. and Because, read, read, read frankly, it only cost me a buck a book. Here. Um, so... Uh, uh, so so the idea is you can actually print these things back out again. There are now a couple of these um, uh, in India. 
Uh, this is the first day at the Library of Alexandria uh, when we were uh, doing it in a nearby school. This is an engineer working with a kid. And this is the first book this kid has ever owned. So the idea of having these libraries in digital form might have kind of old-fashioned uh, service models um, that are enabled by it, which I kind of took as surprising at first, being kind of a geek, um, but it does make a whole lot of sense. And we tried one other, was, was launching it in uh, rural Uganda. So we put the first internet connection into the uh, National Library of Uganda and uh, tried out this technology to go and go out to the uh, areas and try to find could this technology work? What we did find is, yes, the technology worked, but we didn't have the right books. And we really needed to go back and figure out how to get newer books, textbooks, things like that, in copyright books uh, available. And I'll, I'll hit more of those issues in a moment. But delivering was getting to be possible. Here's a uh, new robot. Um, it's this amazing Rube Goldberg machine that basically goes and has a printer and has a cover printer and it glues the, the binding and wraps it around and um, goes around and chops it and shoop, out comes a book. Um, so the idea of, of doing print-on-demand books that look like books is, is all around uh, in good shape. Um, I'm actually pretty psyched about some of these newer devices. You know, this is the one laptop per child that's now in, I think it's in 5 million children's hands um, that around the world now. Every kid in Uganda um, at a certain age has one of these things. Um, and that can make it so that they can have access to enormous uh, collections uh, of books. And of course, we've started to see more uh, of tablets, and we've made um, all of the books we've scanned, um, you know, swooshable um, and searchable in these particular domains. And gosh, these things never stop. So one thing I've found is uh, <laughs> uh, if you're going to build a digital library, you better be pretty active going and reformatting things over and over and over again. So the one in the bottom... Um, corner I really like is a, is a little device for blind and dyslexic people. You download a book to it, even if they're encrypted because uh, of, of the laws, and you can, um, it will read a little bit like this. Um, and what they really like is that you can have it read a little bit like this, and it can go very, very fast. Um, so actually, the largest library um, in digital form is available to the blind and dyslexic um, just because of the copyright allows everything to be uh, available to them, which I find actually is a, is a good social justice. Um, then the question, okay, now if we've got it so that we actually want these things online, how do we get it there? And we've been involved in a bunch of different projects. This is uh, the, from the Million Books Project. Uh, we got a bunch of scanners for Library of Alexandria, and um, they put them into India and China. Uh, this guy doesn't look too thrilled about it. It, it does take a certain level of zen to scan books. Um, but you basically turn the pages, photograph the pages, um, and then process them and, and, and make them readable. We found that this technology didn't make for very good-looking books. So we designed our own system that holds a book like this so it doesn't break the binding. And it raises and lowers glass to flatten it and takes two pictures. And a person turns pages. And a person can basically digitize between one and two books an hour. And that's about what it takes to basically get a book so it's in beautiful form. Then you can take those images. You have to do all sorts of QA to make sure you didn't lose any pages and you straighten them out, uh, do all of that kind of thing. Um, read the pages so you can search it and, and use it in new and different ways. Um, and then make it into PDFs and 
Kindle books and Nook books and, you know, blind and disabled, uh, dyslexic books and blah, 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 blah. Um, And all of that process um, can, can be done at this sort of speed. We now have 29 scanning centers in six countries, and we're scanning over 1,000 books a day. So the idea of being able to do this at scale uh, is, is, is possible. Um, it costs us about 10 cents a page or about $30 a book, so a 300-page book, to digitize a book. Um, if you take all told, it's probably $40 in terms of all of the handling and the whole shebang. So the idea of digitizing things en masse is quite doable. Another project that we've started up is uh, to digitize all of the publications ever done in Balinese. So the first whole language that may be complete, the whole language, everything ever published in it, might be Balinese, which I also find kind of cool. <laughs> um, and it's a large part because they just said, you want to scan all of our stuff? Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, how can we help? Um, and so these guys are, are, are scanning away. There are a couple libraries. And what they publish on are palm leaves. Um, because in... Uh, in an area that is a jungle, paper doesn't work very well. So it's palm leaves that are scratched into. And the way that they're read is they're sung. And they're sung by priests. Uh, and this language is um, spoken by two or three million Balinese, but it is going away because the Indonesians are basically putting in Indonesian instead of Balinese. So we hope that this is a mechanism of keeping the diversity of languages going, just as uh, Stuart and, and Laura were referring to. And the materials are just fantastic. So now we've got all these scanning centers all over the world starting to, to, to chug along um, and doing about 1,000 books a day. We could do quite a bit more, and it's just funding limited. Um, and we're starting to get over the hurdles of sort of why would you want to do this? And people are saying, okay, now how do we do this uh, faster? We're up to about 3 million texts that are available on the Internet Archive site for free downloading. No restrictions, just go nuts, uh, which is pretty pretty darn great. Uh, we have 250,000 modern books that are available to the blind and dyslexic and 100,000 modern e-books that are available through a lending library. It starts to get a little tricky. The book, Google Book Project uh, was running along with some great libraries uh, and they ran headlong into a lawsuit that uh, uh, and these libraries tried to do a kind of interesting game to go and build a subscription-based system as a way of settling the lawsuit. Uh, and the Justice Department said that was a bridge too far. That's a monopoly. Uh, let's, not, let's not go there. And that whole project is sort of stalled. So there's another approach, which is to, to really act like a library and lend things. Um, so I'll, I'll say a little bit more about, uh, about that. But I'd say we have about 8 million books to go. If what we're trying to build is a Boston Public Library or a a Yale or a Princeton, that's about a 10 million volume project. About 10 million volumes. I'd say we're about 2 million volumes into it, even though there are 3 million texts. About 2 million. So I'd say we have about 8 million to go. And if we were to sort of just write the check, what does that cost? It's about $160 million at this point, if we knew all of it was coming through to be able to do the R&D. So that's a big number, but it's not an unbelievable um, number. The libraries in the United States are about a $12 billion a year industry. About 3 or $4 billion goes to publishers' products. So the idea of a one-time cost of $160 million to be able to get 
basically the whole darn thing uh, online in terms of books is, is within our grasp. Then there's a the question, how do you deal with some of the copyright issues? Uh, we built a site called openlibrary.org, uh, and it's, the idea is to have one web page for every book ever published. And if it's available from someplace to buy or to borrow or to download, that you can have uh, links to it. Um, we use this site to build this lending library. So we're working with libraries around the world to uh, make it so they contribute in copyright books that are digitized and made part of a pool. And then if you're in one of these libraries, you can have access to the whole pool. And we now have a thousand libraries participating, putting books that are in copyright into this pool, and then we lend it one person at a time. It's sort of clunky, uh, sort of wrapping ourselves in the old-style library. Um, you, know, why, you know, why make that limitation? Well, because there's a tradition around it, and the other guys are still in court. So the idea is to try to, um, uh, the idea is to, try to find a way through this thicket. Um, and so what does lending look like? If you walk into any of the Boston Public Library uh, libraries, um, and you go to the borrow, um, borrow pages, or if you go into any of the, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but any uh, libraries around here as well, you can click on, hey, there's this HTML5 uh, for web designers, and we bought this book. And we bought this book from a publisher such that we could lend it. And so uh, you can say, oh, I want to borrow this book. But it says, oh, it's checked out. Ah, darn. And then you can add it to your list and, and remind yourself to go and, and get it some other time. If you go back out and say, oh, well, I really wanted this, this Mayflower uh, uh, Descendants book um, that was contributed by the Boston Public Library. Um, it was published in 1994, and they digitized their copy, kept their, their copy to the side, and they're lending it digitally. So they're uh, one person at a time from the Boston Public Library through the Open Library site. You can say, ah, oh, gosh, I want to see it um, in these different formats. Do I want to download it onto my Kindle or, or my, uh, my Nook, or do I want to read it in a browser? I want to read it in a browser. And it says that it's, it's coming from the Boston Public Library. So we're really happy that uh, basically libraries are sort of walking arm in arm and saying, these digital things may not be as different from the, uh, the physical world as we used to think. Let's go and at least not lose what we had in the physical world as we move forward. And then let's try to make gains uh, beyond that. So then we can check these, uh, check these things out, um, and it's all, all free. Our libraries join as they send an uh, email to uh, the head of, of books at the archive. They contribute at least one modern book. They commit all of their public domain books um, to be uh, freely available, and they send the IP addresses, and blammo, um, we, we turn it on. And I'd like to announce tonight, that's actually kind of fun, that um, based on the good work of Stacey Aldrich, who's the state librarian in California, she said, why don't we just turn on not only everybody in every public library in California, but everybody that's in California. I'm the librarian of California. Why don't we just make California a big library? And we said, well, that's a great idea. So, um, so this afternoon, we, we made it so that if you're a resident of, if your IP addresses or you're coming from um, California, you'll uh, be able to get any of the 100,000 books by going to the open library for free. So that's kind of cool today. Um, we hope to be turning on more states at a time 
and maybe whole countries at a time. But it's basically showing a large number of people working together to make a model that works all the way around. We buy books from publishers that are new. We scan our older stuff. Um, and all the really old things, the public domain, we give away uh, completely. So all in all, it's working. The idea of taking all the books ever published, digitizing them, putting them on disk, making them available, whether they're in copyright or out of copyright, is within our grasp, and there's good progress being made. So that, now, let's go on. Let's not stop there. What about all the audio of the world? Well, um, as best I can tell, out of all of the disks in the world, so the, uh, the 78s, long-playing records, or CDs, there are about 2 to 3 million that have been published sort of through the 20th century. Um, which is when those things, you know, they're still being made, but they're kind of on their way out. Um, and, but that, that uh, era is sort of two to three million. That's doable, except it's a very heavily litigated area. So we've tried to uh, find um, things that people would be happy about sharing, and we found that there's lots of nooks and crannies uh, that isn't putting Britney Spears or Lady Gaga up on the line um, to, that people want to have uh, access to. Um, and they're all, everybody's all around happy. So what we did is we, um, we said, well, I don't know, we're a library. We have cultural materials on our shelves. Why don't we take anybody that has materials that's okay to share and offer them unlimited storage, unlimited bandwidth, forever for free? And so... And we started doing this, and the rock and rollers took us up on it. So the, um, the, the Grateful Dead started a tradition... Of allowing people to record their concerts and trade tapes, N- nobody could make any money on it. You couldn't even charge postage for the for the you know uh, in terms of uh, when you're trading Grateful Dead tapes. But no one, so nobody made any money. But it allowed the culture to spread. These archivists are fanatics, um, and so we uh, we said, okay, this taper community moved online, and we're trading it via FTP. Uh, about 10 years ago. But they could never keep things up on their servers very, very long because their system administrators would go and yell at them and they'd have to take it back off again. So uh, there was an intern that worked at the archive and he said, you know, it's still going on. Are you really up for this unlimited? Yeah, yeah. So he said, okay. So we we wrote the uh, the taper email list, a a letter. You know, we went unlimited. And they they wrote back, we don't believe you. But if you could do it, it would be our dream. Always a good sign if somebody says it'll be their dream. Um, so he said, try us. And we thought it was different from tape trading, so we asked for some level of permission from the bands. You know, this isn't signed in triplicate. Just have somebody say it's okay. Um, and so uh, we got, started getting three bands a day signing up. Um, uh, and about 40 or 50 concerts being uploaded in full-on, full-res, uh, downloadable, okay, as long as nobody... Uh, gets paid for. And uh, we now have over a million recordings and 100,000 concert recordings and everything the Grateful Dead has ever done. (laughs) Um, So all in all, we're finding ways to make the whole thing work. Um, In terms of digitizing discs, um, there are two to three million of them. It costs us about 10 to $20, depending on how complicated the disc is, uh, to be able to digitize it. So all in all, again, that's maybe 20 or $30 million to go through the discs. Um, and then there's other collections, the mp3.coms and the like, 
that are easier to, 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 to pick up, um, that it's possible to get these things online. Exactly how to do the distribution on the commercial materials, uh, we haven't quite figured out. We now have over a million audio items and 100 collections uh, spanning from news um, to lectures to uh, different kinds of audio and 78s uh, and all sorts of, of different kinds of things. So the idea of not only books, but audio being doable uh, is within our grasp as well. Moving images. Well, can we do all moving images? Well, how many are there? Well, most people think of moving images as theatrically produced movies. Um, and uh, Rick Prelinger's estimation is there are about 150,000 to 200,000 of them, and about half of them are Indian. <laughs> um, um, but that's sort of a doable scope. Um, most of these things uh, are still under copyright. Um, uh, a lot of them are not being actively um, promoted anymore, but we found about 1,000 uh, so far that are not under copyright, so we made those available. But the thing that we found out of the moving images experience is the other stuff. It's the one or two million 20th century moving images um, that were done for some form of public release, but not really, not meant for theaters. Um, the educational films, advertisements, government films, those sorts of things. And working with Rick Prelinger, uh, who's, who's doing the Lost Landscapes series, uh, who's been collecting these things, he said, you know, people are really going to want those. It's like, those films? Really? I mean, those were the, the types of, of films about physics or about, you know, do you want to be a, type, uh, um, a typesetter or uh, those sorts, you know, why not to uh, 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 hitchhike, whatever those sorts of, th th those things that in junior high school when you had a substitute teacher, they wheeled in the projector, those. So we have those. And people download these things by the millions. And I'm not quite sure why. Um, they, I, I think they, they maybe they make new films out of them. Yes. They make sort of video wallpaper. Yes. Sort of kitsch. Yes. Um, but this sort of material is actually much more popular than I ever thought. Um, and it is um, now a lot of it on the Internet Archive. And it's very inexpensive. We figured out mechanisms to go and, and bring this song on board. Then we started to go and let other people upload stuff. <laughs> well, there's whole genres I'd never idea would ever exist, like Lego movies. Um, if you take um, still uh, uh, cameras and, and take pictures, you can... Anyway, uh, and you put a soundtrack on it, Presto Movie. It's a whole genre, and they found us because we were doing free hosting. Um, and large part, uh, YouTube has come about um, since we started this and has done most of the, uh, uh, of the video archiving. <laughs> Actually, thank God. Um, uh, uh, but at least the longer uh, form and, and more scholarly things are still going to the Internet Archive. We're starting to work with 8mm and 16mm, a lot of home... Uh, movies and trying to bring personal materials online, and so that uh, type of thing is uh, is quite uh, doable. And uh, this is our first scanner towards doing that. So the idea is to try to find a mechanism of taking all the moving images, whether it's on videotape or film um, or on hard drives, and make them uh, available. And we're finding that the cost is is doable. And if you stay away from some of the hot button commercial items. Um, the idea of having these things out there is becoming uh, much more common and okay. Then there's television. So in, 1990, in 1976, there was a 
law that was passed that said the Library of Congress is supposed to archive American television. And then they published a, a report in 1996 saying, uh, we didn't. <laughs> and, I, I, and, and I remember talking to Stuart Brand about this uh, around the year 1999, 2000. He just said, why don't you just hit the record button? And that's, you know, it's sort of a Stuart Brand thing to say. Uh, and so we did. Um, and so we started in the year 2000 recording 20 channels of television, 24 hours a day, DVD quality. Russian, Chinese, Japanese, Iraqi, Al Jazeera, BBC, CNN, ABC, NBC, Fox. Just uh, And just recording it. Um, it was kind of a headache at the time. Uh, it was like a very big TiVo box. Um, it wasn't very accessible. When the 9-11 uh, event happened, you know, everybody was sort of trying to think, you know, what can we do to help? You know, does the world hate us? Whatever. So we, uh, we took one week of television news, September 11th, 2001, to September 17th, 2001, uh, just before the first planes went in. And we got those back uh, online. This is in 2001. And on October 11th, 2001, we put it all up on the net and basically said, here's what the world saw. And here's what their reaction was. There were folks on American TV saying that Palestinians were dancing in the streets. Were they? Let's look at Palestinian television. At this point, I think we really understand that television comes with a point of view. Um, and if you're going to think critically, you need to be able to compare and contrast and quote. These are you know, what we learned in high school. But we, really impossible to do on, in television. It just kind of flows past, except if you're John Stewart, or you know, anyway. I want everybody to be a John Stewart research department, um, so that you can basically go back and see what people said, and you know, contrast and compare, and be able to go and use and critically think about such an important uh, medium. And so we've done a little bit towards that with the 9/11 collection, and we're looking to do more, hopefully, for this next election. Uh, that is coming up. But if you go into the Internet Archive, there's this really fun interface for zipping around uh, and looking at, uh, admittedly, very grim material, um, but in a new and different way to be able to, to look at material from around the world uh, and be able to, uh, to, to hopefully make uh, some sense of it. So the idea of archiving all moving images we've found to be within our grasp that the idea of taking videotapes cost-effectively to be able to go and down, uh, digitize these, make these available, uh, even all of television for a small group like us, um, we're now up to around 100 channels of television um, that we're recording 24 hours a day, um, is doable and within our grasp. Then the question is, how much access can we do in such a way that we don't disturb the apple cart too much um, and try to make it so that everybody's happy as, as we're uh, moving into an era when we can use moving images as a medium of record. So moving images, um, we're, we're doing fairly well, 500,000 in lots of different collections uh, and the like. So books, music, video, um, starting to be uh, doable. If you do allow people to uh, upload to your site, you sometimes attract un unwanted um, patrons, such as the FBI. So uh, the, F uh, the FBI sent us one of those nasty grams called a national security letter. A national security letter is a beast that came out of the, uh, uh, out of the Patriot Act, where they're allowed to demand um, information from all sorts of people, and you can never tell anybody anything about it. 
it, it's really completely bizarre. So they, they, they came and they, they, they uh, wanted to hand this to us, so we sent them to our lawyers, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, <clears throat> and they received this thing, and the EFF came over and said, well, you're, you're, you're going to have to just comply and never tell anybody about it, um, or you can um, push back. And I said, how do you push back? And said, well, it's not easy. You have to sue the United States government. <laughs> um, because there really is no provision to go and appeal. You just have to sue them. So we sued the United States government. Um, so the, uh, and we basically wanted to make a cookbook for the other people that might be getting these and can't talk to anybody about them. I couldn't talk to my board, couldn't talk to anybody, couldn't talk to my wife and kids about this. Um, but the ACLU and EFF uh, engaged in a six-month six um, secret court case um, to basically take this thing out. And it turned out that they really didn't need to know the information that much as it stood, which is... Um, but anyway, um, they, they basically wanted to cave immediately, and we wouldn't let them off the hook. We basically said, not only do we want this thrown out, is we want to be able to tell everybody about it, and we want to publish all of the documents and make it so that, except for who, what the patron that you were after is, we wanted to go and make a cookbook for other people uh, to follow, um, and we won. Um, The, less, the lesson for me out of this was that we really do need to bring some of the traditions of the past into the digital world. That it, the digital world isn't necessarily as different um, as, you know, it, we shouldn't rewrite all the rules. There's a bunch of things that we learned by running libraries over the last couple thousand years. Let's not forget them now. Okay, so uh, uh, on the, closer to the last one, software titles. There are about 50,000 software titles. Uh, we're collecting a lot of them, but we need help to go and get them online and get them bundled into emulators so that people can still um, use them. What we're probably best known for is collecting the World Wide Web. Um, so I helped try to get this, this, uh, this publishing stuff to go on the Internet so that we could build this library. The, uh, the web was starting to, to come around, and so we started collecting the World Wide Web. One copy of every page from every website every two months. We basically send out these robots to click on every link and record what it is they, they saw onto hard drives, uh, and then after two months, start again. <laughs> so just click, 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 click. Uh, and it's starting to get big. <laughs> um, it wasn't that bad when we started. Um, I remember going and visiting the Alta Vista search engine. Uh, and uh, it was a real light bulb go on time when you could look at the web. And it was about the size of two Coke machines. And that was the sort of the size of the web at the time. About 30 million pages uh, was part of the Alta Vista search engine in, I think, January of of 1996. And um, so I said, eh, okay, that's, <laughs> we can do that. Um, so we, we started collecting the web. This is what uh, Yahoo looked like in 1996. Very clean, kind of like Google today. Um, I, I love the dreamers. Um, this is the, the sock puppet, the uh, pets.com guys. Oh, there's, do you guys remember the warm cookies and milk? Um, they, they, they would deliver warm cookies. Anyway, it was uh, completely great. Really bad idea, but uh, it was fabulous. We, we got a lot of warm cookies. Um, MIT's website was really dorky. Um, this is what uh, the long now um, <laughs> looked like in 1998. Um, and so we basically put this together, and then we started making it available as a, uh, as a resource uh, called the Wayback Machine. 
uh, to make it freely available again. And uh, the way we've sort of survived in that whole realm is we're pretty responsive to people wanting us to take things off. Um, so that if, it's, if it wasn't meant for the ages, then we'll take down uh, web pages. But mostly people use it to get their own materials back out. And they, um, it gets about 500,000 users a day, which I was really surprised about. Um, that it gets that much use. It gets, um, it's about a, th- a six petabyte database. It's about 150 billion pages. And it gets about 1,000 queries a second. So it's kind of fun in terms of the sort of magnum scale of it, but it's still possible by a small group like us. There's um, some, some things that uh, I would use to justify making such a collection. This is a... Uh, uh, a press release by the President of the United States saying uh, when he was standing around on an aircraft carrier that announcing combat operations in Iraq have ended. And a couple days later, it was changed to say that major combat operations in Iraq had ended. There was no mention that there was a, a change to the press release. It just changed. Um, and, and if we're not going to live in a perpetual present or when people can go and change the past at will, we're going to need to have third parties that go and record things and make them uh, enduringly uh, available. We're starting to work with more organizations to build uh, collections to make sure we've got the right stuff. We have an archiving tool. Um, And this is when events like the Japanese tsunami happened, we started working with organizations around the world to find what are the key sites that will be about that and be able to record them. And so we recorded a lot of Japanese uh, materials with the cooperation of the National Library in Japan, which they didn't feel comfortable um, collecting themselves, uh, given their copyright laws. So we collected it, and then we went back and donated it to them. Uh, They were very thankful. Um, Why they think that's... Well, anyway, uh, we're all around. We're we're very happy that that kind of thing is is going on. So even the web uh, is doable. Rare books and letters, we're starting to get better at. Uh, More personal archives and the like uh, with digitizing stations that are basically glorified camera stands with high-end digital cameras and good workflows and metadata. So the idea of even bringing our personal materials online is doable. So I tried to give you a breadth of all of the media types and all of the published works of humankind and try to argue that technologically, financially, even law-wise, that we can go and make these things uh, available. And so that, I think, is an, a change to be able to go and say, okay, what if we did the whole darn thing? Then the next question is, okay, now you have a lot of it online. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> How do you preserve it? Um, and there are a couple different ways. You can try burying it in the desert, which is kind of the Rosetta uh, stone or Rosetta disk kind of idea. Or you can try to keep it in flow, in flux. And, um, but if we're going to build the Library of Alexandria version 2, we should probably think about that. Well, what's the Library of Alexandria version 1 best known for? Burning, right? It's best known for not being here anymore. Um, there, there, it was the center of learning of the ancient world. And there's only eight pieces of papyrus that are in any place now that are believed to have been in the ancient library of Alexandria at that time. And they're basically little scholar notes that, that got taken away. So it's so completely gone. Um, if they just made a copy. <laughs> um, so India and China were up and running through that whole period, and, and they didn't have a real tradition of burning libraries like anyway um so there's um 
so there's, uh, so making copies. So when the new Library of Alexandria came around, they, they contacted us, and they said, yes, let's, let's participate and help. And we said, okay, for your opening, they re-architected the first floor of it, and this is a picture in, in the Library of Alexandria in 2002 of our, collect, our web collection, our movie collection, as it stood then. So there they took the whole thing and served it as a Wayback Machine to the world to have a whole replicated copy in a different location. So we were very happy uh, uh, that they were interested in uh, doing this, and it was a fabulous couple months to help rebuild the Library of Alexandria. This is what the first parts of it looked like in Amsterdam. So now we've got San Francisco, Alexandria, and Amsterdam. So we have an earthquake zone, the Middle East, and a flood zone. (laughs) What could go wrong? Uh, uh, So if if we had five or six... Uh, regional areas that were really working to go and archive their own regions and then do large-scale swap agreements between each other so that as iron curtains go up and down or disasters or governments go and burn libraries, whatever, um, that those, um, we'd be there to basically help rebuild. If we had five or six copies of this, I think I could sleep. Um, but we're only sort of to, to uh, you know, ours plus a couple, uh, couple of starts. Uh, so we're not really quite uh, there yet. But I think that's probably the best opportunity for lasting through centuries um, that, that I know of. This is what um, a couple years ago when we were about 2 petabytes, 2,000 terabytes, goes mega, giga, tera, peta. So this is uh, two, 2 petabytes. Um, and this is what... Um, the Wayback Machine looks like. So if you want to know how big is the web, okay, you have to ask me. I'm oh, glad you asked. The web is 20 feet by 8 feet by 8 feet. And it sits outside. If you use the Wayback Machine, you're using that computer. That is a computer that's a shipping container that's full of computers that are full of computers that are full of disk drives, and it operates as an enormous database machine. Um, and we think that's, I don't know, pretty cool. And so Sun uh, helped uh, uh, us buy this thing, um, and it's now on the Oracle campus, um, and that's uh, pretty neat. Our next generation, uh, we were able to make them pretty again and make a sort of blinking uh, uh, machine and put it in our, our new building. And so this is what uh, the Internet Archive collections uh, now look like. And what's kind of neat is, is every light, whenever a light blinks, it's either somebody uploading or downloading something from the Internet Archive. So it's got this sort of lively sort of look to it uh, to make kind of a library that's, that's kind of fun to be uh, around. So the idea of preserving this um, is doable. You have to, every five years, move to the next generation, keep copies in, in other places. Um, and love them. The idea is to need it. If we don't need it, it will disappear. That's how uh, every, basically the history of libraries is they get burned. They get burned in general by governments because they don't want them around. They're usually sorry about it 100 years later, but it's too late. Um, So the idea is to design for it um, and try to keep these things in use uh, and around. But we found that just keeping digital materials isn't enough. Um, that we're now accumulating physical books, and also libraries are throwing out books at a velocity. And so we're, since we're digitizing books, we wanted to keep the physical versions that became di- digital 
um, just to have sort of the tie between the physical worlds and the whole provenance. So we've seen things now from books to microfilm um, to CD-ROMs and then to hard drives and then to hard drives and then to hard drives. And we basically keep all of those different versions. And we just launched um, this last year a physical archive in uh, Richmond, California, that's basically modified shipping containers that are temperature and humidity controlled to be able to do high-density book, music, video, microfilm, and computer storage so that we basically keep all of the different versions of these things and over time. This collection, um, which is about 30, 40-foot shipping containers, uh, will hold about 1 million books. It's got now 350,000 uh, cataloged ones and a couple hundred thousand un- yet to be cataloged uh, books. But that kind of density and that kind of cost can make it so we don't have to throw books away. The Friends of the San Francisco Public Library book sale that was here in Fort Mason a couple of months ago, all the books that didn't sell, they donated to us. It was about 130,000 books. And about half of those we didn't have yet. Those are the books we're keeping, and then we donate uh, the other half to other nonprofits. So we're starting to collect we're trying to collect one physical copy of all the books of the world, and we think that we should be able to get up to 10 million books. Um, that's sort of, uh, we're not going to get to the collections of the Library of Congress or, or the like, um, but will be a different kind of collection that will have a different kind of access method and model. So what I tried to argue is that we can take all of the the published works of, uh, of humankind and put them online. We can make them accessible, and we can make them um, persist over time. Universal access to all knowledge. I think it could be one of the great things humans have ever done. I think it could live on in the mythology of humankind, of the Library of Alexandria, a man on the moon. I think the, it's one of the things, and I think it's one of the things our generation can do for the next, is to sort of declare an open society really open uh, to all. And in closing, a, a, carved above the, uh, the the door in the Pittsburgh Carnegie Library. Carnegie, one of the most capitalistic guys that's ever been produced by this world. He put free to the people. Thank you very much. Let's go sit. Well, you got everybody charged up. Uh, me too. What should we all rush out and do? Well, let's, let's start. Sorry. Was that it? Did I just kill all knowledge? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is 200,000 books, which is actually kind of interesting. It's, four, it's a four-terabyte hard drive. Wow. And um, at this point, you can put... These are of scanned color PDFs that are searchable. If you plug it into your Mac and wait long enough, which is a long time, then you can use Spotlight to actually search inside 200,000 books. So, careful. <laughs> <laughs> so what should we do? Um, well, don't throw things away that are valuable and, and probably new in different ways. If, if you're going to throw them away, throw them towards us. Um, so uh, we're taking donations of things. Um, but also of bits, um, and carve your own legacy, if you will, your offerings to next generations, and put them in long-term places. Um, the Internet Archive strives for that. 
mm-hmm. long now strives for that. Um, nonprofits seem to last longer than, uh, than for-profits. Um, so think about the longer term in terms of what it is your offerings are to people now, your children, and maybe even uh, to people you don't even know. Where do you send stuff and where do we send digits? Uh, you can send stuff to us. If you've got a large enough collection, we'll come and help pack it up and, and, and move it out. Uh, archive.org. Um, you can come visit us in the Richmond uh, uh, facility. Mm-hmm. We have a free lunch every Friday. Uh, so please come and uh, it's, 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 it's fun. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Come on. <laughs> well, okay. So I mean, you were flying in the face of that whole story of there is no such thing as a free lunch. This is free to all. There is a free to all. And, and it works. Guess what? I found there in my, is in my career, lunch. if you give things away, things go better and better and better. Um, I, I, you know, I've run companies, started companies, and they've generally been relatively small. Um, and now this sort of give everything away, and we've grown much larger than any of the companies I've built. It's a business model that works. Information wants to... Uh-huh. <laughs> you mentioned this before the talk. We, we were noticing together that uh, businesses we've been involved in have kind of limited lifespans, and the nonprofits we've been involved in at times have much longer lifespans. How come? Some of it's expectation. Some of it's... That we. I think there's this exponential growth thing, I think, it's, uh, of companies. That grow or, is, that grow or die is grow part or of the die. Deal. Is uh-huh. you're supposed to do that? I, I don't understand why. I, when people start talking about an exit, isn't that the weirdest thing? I mean, I, I love these terms like exits and resources and what the people, right? They're, so the idea of building stable things that are a certain size, so buying your own building, mm-hmm. sort of limits your growth. But peachy, I don't want to work with you know. So you know. It, they're also, they're thinner skin. They're easier to work with others. Uh, nonprofits nice. have been very interesting. And the growth of high-tech nonprofits in the Bay Area, this is a different mm-hmm. subject, but I find very interesting. It's some of the most interesting things are going on within the Wikipedias. Okay, the Wikipedia, Mozilla. Computer History, yep. you guys, who else? EFF is a, is a nonprofit law firm mm-hmm. that basically serves the open world. Mm-hmm. Um, the Apache Foundation, Linux Foundation. There, um, there's ISC, which is a nonprofit ISP. Mm-hmm. So there's these folks that are doing real infrastructure that are lasting decades. And a lot of the things that they came from, you know, are sort of flash in the pans. I think also we've been finding that it's, it's getting easier to hire really good people because they want to work on something that'll last. If you worked in a dot-com, sometimes the, the only thing you really have to show for it is a few pages in the Wayback Machine. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, that was two years of my life, you know. Well, and so, so the idea of working on things that um, are likely to get out to people and last um, is a draw. For All right, so I get it. Nonprofit is the aftermarket for the for-profit because it happens in your case. You made some money doing some things with Waze and Alexa and stuff like that, and some of that money is playing into the Internet Archive. I presume some of these people who want to go work for the .orgs formerly worked at the .coms and are squared away enough that they're not going to try to get rich at the Internet Archive no, or no, the Long no. Now Foundation, right? Uh, some, to some extent. If people are fortunate enough to get rich, that's, mm-hmm. that's terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly not. Mostly mm-hmm. there are people that are just you know, working along and trying to make it go. Um, I actually, I think the nonprofits are more like how organizations used to be mm-hmm. 100 years ago. 
before everything's a joint stock company. They're called trusts. We had some troubles with them. They need the antitrust. Anyway, I think there's a... We kind of went wrong by building these corporations because they're very easy to merge. So we've sort of commodified groups of people. Hmm. Nonprofits are unbuyable. And I think that's one of the things that makes them enduring. So I think they're a lot like... Anyway... Does somebody you are write something? on something profound here. I yeah. think. <laughs> so you're telling me the Internet Archive doesn't have an exit strategy? <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you at the exit. Right? <laughs> so it's just endless entrance. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Okay, no exit because there's no exit. It's all entrance. A um, couple questions from uh, Tristan and Chris, both asking basically, how do you check for duplicates in multiple versions of original material? Ah, duplicates. Um, so we've always tried to deduplicate, like the web collection. Um, we, as best we can tell, about half of our collection is a duplicate. But uh, the average life of a web page is about 100 days, as best we can tell. Has but, that changed over time? I don't know. When did, uh, when if somebody wants to do a study number? of our, our <laughs> collections, uh, because we're usually just too busy just trying to get it to work yeah. you know, and keep up. Um, well, when but, did you come up with that number? It was a number of years ago. Ninety-nine. Uh, okay, 2000? so this is a research opportunity. If somebody yeah. adjusts the number, it might be yes. longer, it might be shorter. Right. So what, I don't know. What would be your guess? Um, more and more, of the pages are computer generated, um, and so those may not be contentfully different, but f from a computer perspective, so mm -hmm. it'll be shorter. More and more, of the web is sort of this, this effervescent computer-generated stuff, um, but. So I, I would say if we were to do the same count in the same way, um, we're, we're probably getting shorter and shorter. Well, that suggests another whole kind of way back research could be done of the sort of the nature of pages, how that's changing over time. Yes. And what do you notice so far on that? Uh, things are becoming more active. I think we need to archive active services. So people have, have built websites, but they want to do something next. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it used to be that you could just you know, write up your paper or your book mm -hmm. and you put it on the shelf and the librarian's job was to sort of take care of it. Right? Mm -hmm. You can go mm -hmm. and work on something I'm else. Done now, right? But that doesn't really work on the web. Hmm. All right? If you, you know, don't keep it up, it'll die. It'll fall over and people get, you know, they'll email you and they still mm -hmm. have you know, they get pissed. Um, so you can't leave things. So how can you go and hand off a working service to a library? Mm -hmm. That, I think, is, is the next thing that we really need in terms of the web is archiving living, working services. Well, there's archive with an X, which is an important uh, pre-publication server that's part of the physics world and the math world mm -hmm. um, by this unbelievably great guy, Paul Ginsberg, um, and he's been trying to put it into the Cornell Library mm -hmm. so that they'll take over. And it's not a good fit. Um, but they're trying. They're really giving a good shot. The financial models don't work. Some of the, this is the general things. So existing libraries and active running digital resources mm -hmm. don't quite fit yet. So we need an, either a new generation of libraries or show the way or, or make that work. How much of that can be done by robots? I mean, could you, could you have a, a basically extinct website that has a bunch of links on it? The links are mostly dead now. Can a robot keep those links somewhat alive? Oh, sure. They can keep the links alive, but how do you keep the, the question answering part, the search engines, the databases, how do you keep it getting updated? Mm -hmm. Right? So, and so it doesn't become stale. So this isn't something that's, you know, you want something that continues on being what it was now. I mean, the, a, lot of the web a lot of the websites we use have active parts of themselves. And that might be able to be continued on. Right now, the Internet Archive is taking snapshots mm -hmm. of things, how they looked. 
but not how they act. Yeah. And that's not an easy thing. Are you, do you have any cases yet of that working of uh, no. an otherwise about to die website being able to stay alive? So. Well, just, just the links, like GeoCities, uh, which was a very major thing mm. in, the, in the 1990s. That was going down, so we worked very hard and with a bunch of very active uh, 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 volunteers basically tried to grab it. MP3.com, mm -hmm. which was not very good music. Uh, but there's a lot of it, though, uh, and a lot of people's creativity. So we worked very hard to, uh, to collect that. When Yahoo Video is going down, Google Video, mm -hmm. um, and we're trying like heck to try to keep up with a critical mass of YouTube. So, but, but most of this is trying to just keep up with the, uh, uh, with the collections. But it's getting big. Question from Ken Prokuski. Have you given any thought to capturing the world's genetic information? There is GenBank out there. Yes, but uh, I suppose I'll on upload the, yeah. my... Um, yeah, okay. This. Uh, we, we haven't really been doing uh, much in that domain. There, there's a lot of folks that are doing um, scientific data sets and trying to archive... Uh, those and they have Ooh, real problems, and they're really difficult to figure out how to reuse. How do you go and make things such that somebody can use it again? Um, and it's challenging. So we haven't. Uh, um, we've we've got some things. Mm -hmm. We've got map collections. We've got images of the Earth that people put on us. Mm -hmm. um, but there are other folks that are really doing much better jobs of a lot of the scientific. Um, data sets. We're mostly doing cultural materials. And until we do that well, um, I think we should just stick to our knitting. So Laura asks, are you doing, uh, are you digitizing physical objects, speaking of cultural things? Ah, uh, physical objects. Um, there's a project that I find pretty neat. The California Academy of Science, Sciences wants to digitize all of their ants. <laughs> uh, and they're doing a great job. They've got this, uh, Brian Fisher is in the audience, uh, built this machine that takes a tile of pictures from lots of different angles to build up a model of ants because uh, they actually have drawers and drawers and drawers of these things. And across all of the, uh, uh, the scientific organization, uh, the natural history museums, there are tons of these things. Um, and so there's work to, to do on that. We've done some experiments on that, but we haven't really come along very far. It's mostly in the grant making, but what's helped in there is people going and saying, let's do it all. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you say, let's do it all, you get around all of the problems of, well, my aunt's more important than your aunt. It's like, no, 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 we'll just do all of them. Uh, and, and that uh, uh, just sort of sets the, the bar and also keeps the, the bickering down. And you just have to get the technology to, uh, uh, to work. That's interesting. That's, this is to Kevin Kelly's point that all is different than most, or yes. even many. Yeah. <laughs> do you collect art? Asked Muldoon. So oh, we like collect a lot of Britney Spears photos. Um, uh, 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 um, we we collect whatever it is that's out there. We don't really have a mm -hmm. good idea. We're we're mostly oriented towards okay, media. Okay, what do you type. say no to? Come on, no. What, what what do I offer? And you say sorry, we don't do that. Mmm, smelly cheese. Um, Not yet. No, we have a lot of porn. A lot of porn. Um, uh, is, is that uh, a busy uh, part uh, of the way back? <laughs> um, so what, what do we, we, we... We've basically been trying to do the published works of humankind. Some of the things that we don't do are things that weren't meant to be published. So we don't collect, for instance... Um, Facebook pages that weren't public. Hmm. Um, we don't want to be spooky. We don't want to be the place that um, 
<laughs> you don't want around, stuff yeah. to be there. Um, and so how do we deal with that? I, I, I don't exactly know. Because we're starting to deal with things that are given to us that are then made public later. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'd really try very hard to just make things public and really have that be the idea. Think of dark archives, which mm-hmm. we talked about mm-hmm. before. is actually a really bad idea. Hmm. Um, that because if you leave something dark for a while, mm-hmm. there's a very good chance it will never come back. E- either you just can't figure it out, you didn't record it well in the first place. Um, <laughs> it, it was. <laughs> it, At last, we're going into so and so finally died, and we get to go into who really killed Kennedy or whatever there, the hell it is. And there it is, but we can't read it. Yeah, back, backup <laughs> tapes have got a long history of like not really being there. So keeping things in circulation, keeping things loved. Um, I think is absolutely critical. Having some communities and having an idea that it isn't all dark and all light, that there are things that are just going to be interesting to scholars and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there's this idea that you know one digital copy means that it's everywhere. It's like, that's not, just not true. Um, so the idea of having these materials and having them be available, but just not available very well, I think is the, is the way to go. Dark archives, I... I I, I will suggest is not a good idea. How bet you could have robot dark lovers that would keep the dark archives alive? Nah. I mean, how's reading your old email from 20 years ago? Oh, my God. Not That's very good. Yeah, right, well, you know, or just you know, try, try reading floppies. I, it, this stuff, it, it dies really fast. Uh, especially in the digital world. And if, if it's not accessible, also you can't get the funding to keep it used. So there are these mm. organizations that are mm. funded to try to keep things dark. But if it's not loved, you're not going to attract great people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, 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 it's not going to also... If you take some things out of circulation, there's a, Mike Hawley suggested that on the bombing of Cambodia mm-hmm. um, during the that period of American history and Cambodian history, um, that the people lost how to dance. Hmm. And so bringing it back too late, mm-hmm. you're sort of teaching it as if it's a foreign language. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to keep things in circulation. And it's not... There's, I so think we've we, over-properterized information, that there's a role for continuous access, especially mm-hmm. by groups of people that aren't trying to commercially exploit. So we're being told that it isn't really storage, it's flowage that keeps things going. Yes, that's, uh, that's right. That, and that helps it being migrated from platform yes. to platform, and you're finding out the, you know, the usefulnesses, which they keep being new ones, and old ones that die off, but you don't care because there's new yes. ones, and on and on. And if okay. it starts being really profitable, then you figure it out. But an awful lot of this stuff, eh, just, it'll, it'll keep bumping along. Uh, Nick asked, can an individual declare themselves a library and upload copies of their books to the archive? Uh, sure. Um, I, 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 that's, but yes, you can, you can upload things uh, to the Internet Archive. We'll, we'll try to preserve them forever and make them as available as we can. Um, and a lot of this is sort of an ongoing global negotiation, really. And mm-hmm. we're trying to do this sort of bend-not-break approach. Um, like when we started getting going on the live music collections, Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, there were a couple bands that pulled things down off of it, and we said, "Okay, you know, no problem." Um, and the idea is to just try to have people feel like they're not being locked into forever 
uh, in certain things. So if, if you donate bits or, or scan things, yes. In terms of declaring yourself a library, it brings up this question of what is a library. And when we started out, there was a question of sort of what is a library? And so I asked these lawyers, I think it was at EFF, it was, uh, <laughs> what is it? And they basically said, walk like a duck, quack like a duck, you're a duck. There, is, there wasn't real restrictions, and you didn't have to be blessed by anybody. And I think that's the right way to go. Otherwise, little organizations like the Internet Archive, or at least it was 15 years ago, might not have been able to get off mm -hmm. um, the ground. But having some level of anointing of being a library did help, uh, for instance, with facing down the FBI. <laughs> uh, Barry Gordon asked, do Google crawlers help you or get in the way? And this sort of raises the general question of Google vis-a-vis -vis Internet Archive. Ah, Google. If um, wow, what, what an organization. Um, what a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the reason why the Internet Archive's um, web collections work is because of the search engines in general. Mm -hmm. We kind of follow along after the search engines, and basically there's this quid quo pro between the search engines and the content uh, mm -hmm. uh, websites, where the, the search engines are allowed to make a copy to basically make it searchable, but they're supposed to pass the traffic back the website. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because there's this separation that we can be kind of like them and collect this stuff up. So we really need the search engines to win, but we need them to be separate because as the search engines and the content companies become one, then the motivation for those companies to allow them to be crawled by others drops. Hmm. So Google wants to crawl you, but they don't want you to crawl them. They make it difficult for us to crawl YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't want people to crawl their books. So um, the, even the public domain ones, hmm. so they put up captures, so that you have to be a human, prove you're a human to be able to get public domain books. This doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And it's, hmm? That's evil. Uh, I, I tend to stay away from the evil thing. There's some politicians that have used those words a lot. I, I don't know. Those, it's, it sort of sets a bad precedent. Anyway, um, but it, it, it's, I, I think trying to keep these things separate, the search separate from the content uh, organizations, I think would make uh, a lot of sense. So I think that there's been a bit of overreach on mm -hmm. the part uh, of Google. Um, I think all in all, they're maturing mm -hmm. uh, along. But I hope that there's... It's one of the great things about Silicon Valley is there's, it's a beehive. There's lots of organizations. You have to figure out how to work with each other. Mm -hmm. It's not just one mammoth um, organization. And so I think the idea is keep things small. Keep things lightweight. Keep it so that there's reproducible interfaces between organizations and smarts um, so that there can be new players and they're not sort of encrusted in one. This raises the question of right-sizing for Internet Archive itself, which is you mentioned the negotiation that is sort of constant of, you know, what things get to stay on and you know, negotiating probably with Google about this, that, and the other thing with FBI at a certain time. You must... The limitation of the Internet Archive must be the amount of human time you guys can put on sure. negotiation, basically. Yes. And is that changing, or is it a constant, or the rest of our life, or... Uh, we're we're sort of... We're, I hope we won't grow terribly large. We don't have no lawyers on staff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's good. Uh, we want to keep it that way. You just wheel in EFF. Yeah, EFF. All right, in public, you know, there's actually, it's, so anyway, please donate to EFF. Um, they, uh, they, they really do help um, uh, a lot of organizations. Um, so what's the right size of, of the Internet Archive? I, I like the size of sort of 40 people within a kind of a high-tech environment. Mm -hmm. The Internet Archive is total about 150 uh, people. 
mm -hmm. um, that work in, most of them are in scanning centers. Hmm. Um, it's about a $12 million a year organization now. Mm -hmm. Most of the money comes from uh, libraries hmm. paying us to uh, collect the World Wide Web or digitize books for them. Some money comes from foundations. A bunch comes from just donations um, of, from, from our users, patrons, mm -hmm. um, that keep us alive. Um, so it's that sort of scale, um, and we're trying not to grow. So Patrick asked a question, do you see copyright and or intellectual property, which is endlessly fraught, as near as I can tell, uh, ever going away, ever being unfraught? Uh, I don't, I, I'm Stallman-esque in the, uh, Richard Stallman-like, in, in not using the words intellectual property together. I think it gives too much. Uh, the idea of, of, of ideas as real estate is sort of, I don't know. Um, so, so I use copyright. Here, here. <laughs> Copyright, patent, and trademark. Um, copyright sort of protects an old okay. business model uh, in terms of how things worked, in mm -hmm. terms of keeping people uh, productive in separate organizations. I think things need to change around a bit, mm -hmm. but less than the way we thought. Uh, there were these sort of waves of going and rewriting copyright law. In, 1990, in 1976, the copyright law was uh, rewritten with a response somewhat to the Xerox machine. Mm -hmm. And they did this really weird thing. They, they made it instead of going and having to write a little C and sending a copy into the Library of Congress to cop, cop, get copyright. They said everything's copyrighted. Why? I, I don't know. I think it was just easy to just write the law that way. Blammo! <laughs> it well, it's that a, all that you like what a, instead what a of just What a terrible some. idea! And all sorts of things became copyrighted. They didn't need, need to be copyrighted. But it's because we have this sort of corporate influence on the government that it's going to be almost impossible to get that that really bad idea undone. So I don't know how to take so on copyright. So that's the U.S. practice. Is it changed? I mean, you deal with the whole world now. Yeah. So different, different places. No, that's the, Europe was ahead of us on that one. Egypt, um, uh, China, what are they doing? Uh, they, they're all getting slammed into the United States system by these trade agreements um, promulgated by the United States. And they're, uh, we're pushing things on them that would never get through Congress. Mm -hmm. So I think this copyright thing is just a mess. But it is a, um, I'd say we're, we're seeing two regimes. We're seeing absolute control, mm -hmm. and we're seeing the more the YouTubes and Internet archives and, you know, the, the, the general... And it's, they're sort of splitting, and it's sort of splitting kind of like our politics in such a way that it's very difficult to have real discussions back and forth when I think actually these worlds could work actually well together. Publishing and libraries have always worked in parallel. It, it's a, the three billion to four billion that I mentioned before mm -hmm. that libraries spend on publishers' products is about ten or fifteen percent of the book publishing industry. Wow, that's non-trivial. Yeah, and it keeps a whole level of guarantees for publishers to go and get books out there. You know, but we're having a very difficult time as a digital library buying books from publishers. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. We've sort of gotten just kind of wrapped in sort of in a too much more of a warring position. It just in in general. I mean, the Internet Archive a, gets hold of Penguin and wants to buy a copy of my book. Penguin raises fusses with you? Yes. They, they generally, we're, we're going around and we're, we're having bills fall out. I have a million dollars in my back pocket, uh -huh. really, uh -huh. to go and buy electronic books such that we will buy it and then we'll lend it one person at a time. Right. One person at a time. And they can charge more than, uh -huh. than the, the cover price. You know, whatever. Let capitalism figure it out. We just want to have a set of books. Wow. And um, the Khalifa, 
which is a consortium of California public libraries, said, Brewster, if you can go and make that work, we'll put millions and millions and millions of dollars into things that way. It's the way the libraries want to work. But many of the publishers are saying no. The fringe ones are saying yes. Um, and so we're getting that going. We've got hundreds, not thousands. Mike, how many? Four or five hundred different titles that we've now bought in such a way that we bought it like we bought the old style book. We own it, and we can lend out one copy at a time. But it's just, it's not working terribly well yet. We think that that model works pretty well, so that if you have a popular book, you get paid more. That's a good thing. Um, and there's somebody that's going to take long-term care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, there's, there's still business model problems. The advertising model builds things like radio, television, magazines, mm-hmm. newspapers. We've seen that movie before. It's mm-hmm. kind of crappy. So um, the idea of royalty-based systems, which is how the print world uh, grew up, brought us books, which I think actually are pretty nifty, mm-hmm. uh, all in all, um, and also movies. Um, so that's sort of more paper something. But how do we get libraries and publishing working better together? We're still in the flux of it. I'm, I, I'm a little frustrated. It, it, you know, it's 2011. Shouldn't we be past this by now? But we're not. Um, it's still uh, ongoing. So the digital age basically has been going for maybe half a century now. I said in 1984, information wants to be free. That the Steve Wozniak information wants to be expensive. And those two are fighting it out. <laughs> in 84, that was a long yeah. time ago. And yeah. they're still fighting it out. So it's, it's, judging it, by the past, they will fight it out forever. What the hell? Well, given two data points that you draw a line. Well, I don't no. know. I, 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 think, <laughs> I think we can figure this thing out. I, I, I think we're going to get... Uh, I, I'm an optimist on this one. I think that we're going to be able to have that library of Alexandria that, we're, that we've been looking for. That there's a mechanism, there's enough money out there, there's the political will to live in an open society mm-hmm. that, yes, there's enough money, we have to figure out how to distribute it better, we probably have too many lawyers on staff, not enough business people and, mm-hmm. and people trying to make things actually work. But I think we've got it. I, I think we can make this go. I think the key thing to try to avoid is centralized points of control. I know the, the tipping point will be when there's more engineers than there are lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Kelly asks, what mechanism have you engineered to make sure the Internet Archive outlasts you? Do you have long-term funding? Do you have a successor? How old are you? Uh, 51. There you go. Um, We've got sort of an endowment model. Um, But no, it it hasn't been sort of the real obsession in terms of succession things. Mm -hmm. It's just trying to get it to to work. Um, Would like to see lots of different internet archives and internet archive-like things. Are you generating those? Or well, we're trying those in, in different what? places. The, mm-hmm. We started that one in Amsterdam. And, do uh, they trying to get, get a separate life? or do they? Yeah, they're, they're completely separate life. And they're funded within their own structures and boards that are separating. started one in Canada, and it's starting to separate. So hmm. that, that, that approach. Um, and then they, one of the things I'd like... To, one of the things the internet archive does that I'd like to... St- to try to find some mechanisms to keep it um, pushing the edge, um, trying, trying new and different things. And we've seen a lot more, a lot of older organizations, they often become more conservative. Mm-hmm. So how do you sort of keep things pushing along? And do, do things just need to die and get reborn? Is that a way to do it? Or is there some way of, of engineering it? Um, so that characteristic What's of going and doing that? something how do new. You keep thing, how do you keep things refreshing themselves? Mm-hmm. How do you keep an organization 
forever young. That, are you supposed to answer that kind of question? Uh, oh, well, that's a, next time, it's always, <laughs> don't know the answer to that, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's a really worthwhile thing. I think it's picking good people and making sure your mission is right, but I, I don't have a good answer. What's the median age of people at the Internet Archive? 40? 35? Younger? Anyway, I'm the, looking at some of the uh, uh, Internet Archive folks. Um, um, something in there. Okay. Some, something in there. That bears relation is interesting. I mean, one of the reasons universities keep themselves going is they keep having a fresh set of undergraduates that, you know, keeps things fresh and inventing yes. new disciplines and so on. Dave Margolin has a good uh, final question for us here. What do you want most that you've not got yet and why and how can we help you get it? Oh. <laughs> Softball. Um... Um, I think the big step for us is to figure out how to be used more. How to, um, the real aspect that I think we need to do next is to try to figure out how to be more useful to people. We get used by about 2 million people a day, but I bet... Most of the people in this room haven't, haven't consciously used the Internet Archive right, ever. Right, um, or, so How do we do it unconsciously? I didn't know that happened. <laughs> a lot of sites directly link into resources on the Internet Archive, and you'd never know it. Aha, uh -huh. so you so, don't private label the stuff. No, we don't put splitches on uh, things. You know, it's a, it, no, we're, we're sort of a, a, a backing store or sort of media for people mm -hmm. that uh, uh, want to do this uh, and can't afford to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess the big thing um, that love ideas on or uh, efforts on is to try to make this sort of thing blended in more. How would we blend into the Flickers, the Twitters, the Facebooks? How do we make it so that people can um, hit a button and then uh, digitally archive their, their WordPress uh, uh, blogs into this kind of thing? How, how do we sort of become much more woven in to the world. I, we can go and, and, and find things to digitize and put things up, and, 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 mm -hmm. and, and we can always use money and all those things. But I think the idea is how do we go and make a world that has commercial entities, lots of commercial entities, and different nonprofit entities work together really productively, seamlessly, to make a world that both has the energy and jazz and gasoline of, of the commercial world mm -hmm. and the longevity and security and, uh, uh, and, and thoughtfulness of the nonprofit world kind of all working for us uh, in an integrated digital ecology. We, we had it growing up within the physical ecology. Mm -hmm. What does that ecology look like now and how can the Internet Archive play an interesting role going forward? So can you imagine like a, you know, a button on most of those sites where content is being generated where you can sort of hit that button and it's archived now or what? Yeah, that kind of thing. We've had uh, Yahoo has been great. Whenever they're going to take down a service, they come to us and tell us, you know, hey, we're going to take down this service. You better uh, archive the hell out of it. Um, uh, <laughs> So, so that's good. Uh -huh. uh, we got built into some of the bitlies, you know, those URL shorteners on Twitter. Those are mappings between um, uh, uh, short URLs and a resource. Mm -hmm. But if that company goes away, all of those break. Mm -hmm. So they donate those to us such that when they go out of business, 
which they always do, um, then we, we bring them back to life. And so we've done that now for a few Earl Shorteners. So that's building together. But I think we can do things much more integrated, just so that libraries publishing um, is sort of in, in the same role. Or uh, how are we keeping our own digital, personal digital archives? Mm-hmm. How does that work? And it's not working terribly well now. Mm. So how do we build things such that the Internet Archive and the, or our brethren start to work with, with those things that make it so that our digital lives that are now splattered all over these different services mm-hmm. yet have a long-term life that aren't going to sort of betray us <laughs> when we're trying to run... Well, that's the question. Like now that. you're talking dark archive again. People are worried about, with Facebook and everything else, how much privacy they've already lost, they expect to lose more, and that you want to have all of the really personal stuff... Uh, how are you going to protect it? I don't know. Hmm? You don't know. Don't know yet. But if there's, if there's an answer on those sorts of, of fronts, I think we'd have a more robust digital environment um, hmm. that, frankly, has a lot of the protections that we had um, 50 years ago. And we'd be able to, uh, to live out uh, and grow and exploit having lots of people being interconnected, computers to help us there, and not lose things. Fifty years ago, fifty years from now, um, the long now, we want us to do that. What's your sense of our, not what will happen fifty years from now, that's, mm-hmm. uh, especially in this domain, probably yeah, uh, idle, but um, what sort of formal responsibilities do we have now to the people who like us but totally unlike us 50 years from now might want? I mean, you're sort of talking universal access uh, for everybody for free for all time, mm-hmm. and that covers it. Does that cover it? It might. I'm just checking. The, the, the new entrants in this world are, are the computers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the ones that I think are really going to be the major readers of our books, if not, if not already. So the, the, the world that we're trying to prepare for is not just when humans are the patrons of the library, mm-hmm. but it's when computers come by to try to learn. And that's um, our future user community, if you will. And those AIs will sometimes be kind of independent and sometimes be just search engines that provide new and different types of resources for people. Um, but preparing our materials to be used in fairly different ways um, is how we're trying to keep ourselves relevant uh, going forward. Already, you know, life without the search engines is pretty hard to imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Or even life without Wikipedia. Mm. Or, or if you take Citibank and you had the choice as a shareholder to kill all the people or kill the computers... Which would you do, right? Um, and, uh, so I, I, I think the shift has happened, um, and uh, I'm not suggesting. It. No, uh, um, uh, then uh, I, I think our, our, the next generation um, that really gets to use these things uh, are our computers, and I find that very exciting. Well, let's pursue this just a jot further. Um, Next fall, Tim O'Reilly is going to be doing one of these things, and uh, the title that he plans to use is The Emerging Global Brain, Okay, uh, which isn't just robots getting access to everything, but everything in a sense 
by virtue of it being everything and digital and increasingly aware and language capable and all this kind of stuff, it starts to have seriously aggregate brain-like uh, capabilities. Mm -hmm. Is what we're talking about here uh, feeding into that? And oh, yeah. That, that's, that's where I started. Uh, so I, I, I started at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Lab. I was born in a test tube in, in uh, AI lab, uh, studying under Danny Hillis and Marvin Minsky. And uh, we seemed absolutely data-starved. I mean, there, you know, so we were going to build a thinking machine, right? And um, <laughs> it didn't know anything. I mean, and, it was, it was, and so I said, all right, well, if we're going to bring up <laughs> you know, our new overlords, um, let, let's, let's at least have it read good books. Um, and... <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so I thought, you know, how hard could that be? And I, I really didn't think it was going to take that long. And now we're still at it. But, uh, but we're making pretty good progress. Um, I don't quite think of things in this sort of autonomous AI kind of way. Mm -hmm. How sort of versus the spaceman war. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that'll happen, but, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I think of just much more symbiotically mm -hmm. these days. Um, so I think the... Uh, but the idea of having these materials be used... In fun, and I think we're seeing it already. I think that they're just the, the wondrous things and wacko things that we're seeing out there on the internet are because of a lot of this compute power and the internet in the internet interconnectivity. Um, we just need to make it a deeper resource. I, I, so I've got two kids, and they're not going to the library in the same way I did. They're using whatever's online. That's what they're learning from, and it's pretty shallow. I mean, you can learn all you want about, you know, some old connector technology. But if you want to go and, and learn about some real, it's, it's in libraries and it's not in digital form. Mm -hmm. So I think we're bringing up kids without um, the depth. And the 20th century, Mike Lesk, um, father of digital libraries, said he worries about the 20th century. He thinks the 19th century will be online and before. Um, he thinks the 21st century will be online. Um, but the 20th century may not be. And the 20th century was... <laughs> Kind of a screwed up century. That I, I think we want to make sure we learn the lessons from that one and have the next generation do so. Um, or we're going to get the generation we deserve. So this is interesting. So you're basically saying that, uh, in a way, the 21st century will be self-archiving. It already is. Yes. But archiving the 20th century is going to take prodigious effort. It's going to take some bold maneuvers. Um, and I think we've got um, some of the paths through it. We get mm -hmm. some money going back and forth, keep the publishers alive. We need the publishers and authors mm -hmm. to still get paid. You probably mm -hmm. get paid off, of, mm -hmm. get a check every so often for the books. You, we want to continue that um, going forward. Um, but we've got to get all of it online right now. Because uh, we could spend a whole generation bickering among ourselves. Mm. Um, and they won't have access. They won't use the deep literature of understanding the depression mm -hmm. or the dust bowl. Uh, or a lot of things that we can... Uh, World War II. Uh, there are lessons that we can learn out of these things that are right now being recontextualized by new people. But w looking at the source documents make a whole lot of sense. I think that's some of the reason why the Prelinger old movies mm. are so powerful is they're not recontextualized. They're not a new documentary brought to you by Chevron. Yeah. They, they are the original source documents. Mm -hmm. And that... Um, bringing all of that online and making it available to this next generation, I find a very urgent problem. Not in the next 50 years. Now we've got to get this solved. Universal raw data. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.